Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week in coronavirus news, researchers in Hong Kong have confirmed the first case of COVID-19 reinfection. The man, who was 33 years old, first had the coronavirus in late March and contracted the virus again in August while traveling through Europe. While this does pose more questions about how long someone is immune to the virus after getting it, one thing to note, the second time around, the man did not have any symptoms. For more on this first COVID reinfection, we'll speak to Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. It's a 33-year-old man who lives in Hong Kong and got it in Hong Kong in March when it was sort of um, their epidemic was spiking, uh, appeared to have totally recovered and had sort of classic mild to moderate symptoms of fever, cough and the like. And then he had been traveling in Europe in August and four and a half months later. And as he was coming home to Hong Kong, they, as part of a screening program at the airport, just did a saliva sample. And that came back as positive for the virus. And there have been sort of scattered reports of reinfection before. And some of them have been dismissed as sort of flukes with testing. But what the evidence that this really does appear to be a case of reinfection in this case is because the virus he had in March His doctors sort of sequenced the genetics of the virus then, and they did the same with the second infection. And those viruses were slightly different. It's obviously the same virus, but like there were some slight mutations. And that indicates that the infections weren't actually related to each other. So that's how they were able to establish that it was the second case. And they've been following the sequence of the genome of the virus for a long time. What they were saying, too, is on the West Coast of the United States, a lot of those seem to be coming from... China and other Asian countries. And then on the East Coast, when New York had their outbreak, a lot of that virus was coming out of Europe. So this guy, obviously, he had the first case in Hong Kong. And then I guess he was traveling through Spain and London on his way back to Hong Kong. And that's how he got it. But the interesting thing about this, too, is that the second case was milder than the first time around. He had almost no symptoms the second time around. And at least they're saying that if your body does go through it, you do get some time of immunity protection. Maybe you can't fend it off completely, but at least it's not as strong the second time around. Yeah. So I think when this report came out today, sort of the initial reaction was like, "Uh uh-oh, we had hoped immunity may last longer than four and a half months. And that might still be the case. Like this is potentially an outlier. And for most of us, if we have COVID-19 and recover, we'll be protected from a second infection for longer. It sort of appears that he was sort of a rare person and that he did not amount a very good immune response after the first infection. Sort of studies are showing that most people do mount a pretty good immune response. So this could be an outlier in terms of the timing. But what scientists were sort of heartened to see is that this guy actually had no symptoms on his second infection and was really only detected because of that airport screening program. And so that's to suggest that like maybe his whatever immune response he did generate wasn't strong enough to totally prevent the infection, but it still offered some sort of protection so he didn't get really sick. And that's kind of been one of the hypotheses out there is that if and when reinfections do start happening more broadly, because it should happen eventually, hopefully the plan will be that people get less sick, which is important, obviously, not only for that individual, but in terms of health system capacity and the like. But it's also unclear still 
if this guy is as infectious as he may have been during that primary infection. Yeah. How infectious was he the second time around if the body already knew the virus was already fighting it so much so that he didn't have any symptoms this time around? So that's a, a big lingering question. But we keep talking about other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. People usually are susceptible after a year or maybe a little less. When SARS and MERS came around, the immunity for those lasted a few years. So we kind of always had this in the back of our heads that people were probably going to be able to get COVID a second time around. And health experts say that this is important to know, though, that even if people have got it, they should still get vaccinated when it becomes available. They should still wear their masks and still do their social distancing just to help limit the spread in case they do get it again and they might be asymptomatic. There's going to be quite a demand for vaccine. And so there's been some talk about maybe people who've recovered should be closer to the back of the line. I don't know if, if that's going to be a serious proposal or not, but this does go to show that this is like other respiratory viruses. Like it just does not seem like we're going to have sort of sterilizing immunity, which means immunity for like a complete and complete protection for a long time, which happens with things like measles, for example. So there was always a thought that people would start to get reinfected. And that's, you know, sort of has implications for vaccine development as well, because the thinking with the vaccines that are making progress now is they won't provide lifelong immunity. So it might have to be something that we need a boost for maybe every year, maybe every two years. I mean, that remains to be determined. But people have been sort of thinking that this is something we're going to need to kind of keep up with going forward. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. We know that COVID-19 hits minorities the hardest, but unfortunately, the data often doesn't show it. Many states are not collecting the race or ethnicity of coronavirus patients, which could make it harder to know the real impact on low-income communities. That's why it's so important for targeted data collection of COVID patients. For more on this, we'll speak to Tom Simonite, senior writer at Wired. One of the big challenges of COVID response in the United States is a lack of data, and we don't have enough data on where the disease is spreading, what's happening to people, and it is worse for lower-income communities, communities that are more ethnically diverse and have more minority people in them. And unfortunately, these communities that are being overlooked by the data collection are also those where the disease is the worst, where there are the most cases and people are getting the sickest. Tell me a little bit about some of the barriers. Why is it so hard to get some of this data? And why is it hitting these lower income communities so hard? So a lot of this comes from the deep history of health inequality in the United States. In the U.S., the way health insurance works, a lot of people just can't afford it. Or they happen to live in an area that because the hospital can't make as much money from the poor community, you know, it won't be built there. And so when people who have low access to healthcare get sick, they don't tend to go to the doctor as readily as people who live in rich areas. And so many coronavirus cases, we just don't hear about them at the public health authority level because people aren't going to get the care. There are systems in place to track disease outbreaks, and some of those are in place already to track the flu outbreak that we have every year. But the recent study looked at how one of those systems performed in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and it showed that although this flu surveillance system did a pretty good job of warning when a lot of people had a flu-like illness in a rich area, it didn't provide very good warning for the poor areas, seemingly because people in the poor areas just didn't show up in the health system, and so no one at the public health agency knew anything about it. 
And that's a real challenge right now. There was also another report out of the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, and they were talking about how, you know, a lack of this kind of data is affecting the minority groups and limiting the U.S. response to being able to help out there. More than half of the COVID-19 cases that were reported to the government through the end of May didn't include race or ethnicity. So if you don't have that data, it's going to be really hard to drill down. In the article, you talk a little bit about San Francisco and the Mission District and how they set up this testing for Latino residents there. And basically, they found out that, you know, about 40 percent of all the people that got tested there were Latino, but 95 percent of them tested positive, meaning that community was just being kind of taken over by COVID-19. So after several months of the pandemic, I think a lot of people are aware that minority communities are being hit hardest, but that's not enough. You know, we need to be able to measure it accurately if we're going to respond and, and help people and stop the disease from spreading. And so a very interesting exercise took place here in San Francisco, where the Mission District is a real Latinx cultural center. And community groups there and the local hospital system, which is part of UCSF, were concerned. You know, anecdotally, it was very obvious from looking at the waiting room and the hospital beds that a lot of people in the Latinx community were getting this disease, but they wanted to measure how much. And so they picked out a 14-block square census tract in the heart of the neighborhood, and they put up loads of notices, and they did loads of outreach through community groups and all kinds of other channels and just said, look, everyone who lives in this zone, come get tested. It's free. They went to some effort to make clear that they would not be asking about immigration status because that is a deterrent. Some people, they worry that they'll come to the notice of authorities. They just tested everyone. They wanted to get the baseline, like how many people actually have this disease, even if they don't know it. And yes, the results were very striking. As you said, 40% of the people they tested, it was about 4,000 people that got tested. 40% of them were Latino, but 95% of the positive cases came from that group. And it really painted this picture of just two different worlds, really. You know, people in the Latino community were living in a much worse pandemic than people outside of that group, probably because they're more likely to be in these lower status jobs where, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm lucky enough that I can basically do my job from home pretty much okay. You know, it's inconvenient, but I can do it. But if you work in the restaurant industry and hospitality in a store, you know, you might have to keep going out and that's when you're going to get exposed. And that's what we're hearing across the country, really, too, where they're saying now younger people are infecting older people in the same household, especially in households that have a lot of people living there, which a lot of times Latino people tend to do. You know, they're living in crowded households. So definitely it kind of shows the trend, at least there. So is there an effort to start compiling this data more now? Do we know if states or the federal government is trying to focus in on this data? Like a lot of things about the pandemic response in the United States, you know, it's a real kind of jigsaw puzzle and none of the pieces seem to match. So you do have some very promising local efforts, like the ones here in San Francisco, where they did that study that I mentioned. There has been a follow-up more recently this month in San Francisco, where they put up free testing stations at some of the transit stations. So people who were still having to go out to work, maybe didn't have much time in their schedule, but they would walk past that testing booth and you know maybe they could spare five minutes on the way home to get tested. And that was a way to increase data collection. But other states and cities have not done so well. And there hasn't been a lot of direction from the top, from the federal authorities. And, and that was something that the University of Minnesota report that you mentioned flagged. You know, you really need 
to have a coordinated response to take on a virus like this, which, you know, will travel from place to place. You, you can't just do really well in your city. You need the cities around you, the state around you and the country around you to also help. Yeah, I mean, it's just like everything else with this virus that we're learning as we go. We need as much data as we can to kind of figure out those trends and then send the right responses to whether it's the communities or, or what, whatever we need to do. We can send the right resources there. So still a lot left to know about it. Tom Simonite, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Finally for this week, at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, canine studies are being done to see if man's best friend can sniff out coronavirus. So far, they're doing a pretty good job of it. There are nine dogs currently enrolled in a study with the hopes that one day they might be able to pick out infected individuals, including those that are asymptomatic, in nursing homes, businesses, and airports. Dogs have already been proven to be able to detect explosives and some diseases such as hidden cancers, diabetes, and bacterial and viral infections. For more on these very good boys working to detect coronavirus, we'll speak to Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post. So this is a study being done by uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Working Dog Center. They're based in Philadelphia, and there are a couple of other very good studies being done around the world, one specifically at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. As you mentioned, dogs are very good at smelling. We know that. These dogs are being trained by the people who also work with special ops dogs, dogs that will do very high-level scent work with explosives and things. So we know that many diseases do create a smell. If you think about people who have diabetes, they're known to have a fruity, smelling urine. When people get sick, their breath often changes, and these can be signs of illness. So the question these researchers want to know is, is there a distinct smell attached to this new disease, the coronavirus, that produces COVID-19 in humans and has been causing such disaster around the world? And that's the work they're doing, using the same sorts of equipment they would use to teach dogs to detect explosives. The way they do this is to take, in this case, a deactivated form of the virus. If they were doing an explosive, they would take the explosive and have the dog sniff it and reward them at the beginning for recognizing that smell. Then they put the smell on what's called a scent wheel, among many other tempting smells. And the dogs learn to recognize and get rewarded for recognizing the appropriate smell. After that, you can go out and test and see if the dog can recognize that smell among many, many other smells. And that's what I was witnessing in a place called Greencastle, Pennsylvania, at a dog training center a couple of months ago. There at the center, what they're actually using is urine from a person that is a coronavirus positive. And as you mentioned, they put it on this scent wheel. The dog goes around until he finds it. And they're finding out, I think this uh, program has been going on for like about 10 weeks or so now. And they're finding out that some of the dogs are actually really accurate in predicting this. And they're hoping that if they can uh, detect that scent and really hone in on that, they could even find people who might be asymptomatic and have COVID-19. That's absolutely true. So what I was saying was sort of early on in this research, and the dog's accuracy was stunning. They were testing for deactivated urine. This was urine that had come from positive patients at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital. And was once it was deactivated, was put into these cans that the dogs were circling and looking for. And they were very, very accurate. They can go from there to test other things like saliva, also sebum or sweat. So sebum is the, the sort of sticky substance that's exuded on people's backs and will show up on T-shirts. They're going to ask people to wear T-shirts, people who've recently been tested, and then to return them and see if the dogs can recognize the smell on people's T-shirts. If that's true, and that these early results look very promising, 
there is the possibility that dogs could one day be deployed in airports. Now, there actually is this week news of a test that's a little simpler than this. It's actually taking samples of T-shirts, and this happened after my article was published, but taking samples of T-shirts in Dubai airport, and dogs are being asked to look at those samples, and we haven't yet heard the results of those tests, whether they're accurate. But you can see there's a huge possibility here, and also a huge possibility for using dogs in the first stage of developing electronic noses, which could be less invasive and can work 24-7 instead of the short day that a dog has to work. And these are kind of breathalyzer type noses, the same things that are used in the perfuming industry. Now, I do want to get a little bit more into the artificial noses, but there are some doubts about using dogs in this sense to sniff out people with COVID-19. I guess some of the detractors say there's problems with scaling it up, things like that, but the accuracy could be there, but just to, the time that it takes to train the dogs might not be... The time yeah. and expense and the accuracy is, is, seems as if it's very good at the moment, but the time and expense and then safety issues, of course, for handlers and dogs who could be deployed in airports. We know it's a zoonotic disease, a disease that came from animals, and also this disease has moved into the animal population. So all those issues are extremely important in moving ahead with potentially deploying dogs, which is one of the reasons why an electronic nose could be so much more efficient and safe going ahead. What are the dog breeds that are being used in this particular study right now? The one I saw was eight Labradors and one Belgian Malinois. The Belgian Malinois was a dog that had a little bit more experience with other smells beforehand. In London, they're using Spaniels, I believe, and some Labradors. And there's a French study, the study that's a sample T-shirt, and that's using Belgian Malinois. I asked about the dogs because the dog that's most famous for its nose, of course, is a bloodhound. And I said, why don't you use a bloodhound? And the trainability factor with a Labrador that wants so much to please or another working dog like a Spaniel makes them very, very inviting for these trainers. You know, what, which dog do you turn to if you want to have an easy dog to work with? And they, these tend to be typical working dog breeds like Spaniels and uh, Labradors. Yeah, and if you're going to put them in high-stress situations like an airport or something like that, right. obviously you want a dog that's going to be easy to work with on, on that front. I'm a dog lover myself, so I just always uh, geek out at these types of stories and just kind of the endless possibilities that we can uh, use these animals for. And so this is just another great one. So in the end of this whole thing, though, they're not necessarily sniffing out COVID-19 itself. Uh, there's these things called volatile organic compounds, and this is how the virus would break down other cells in the body. And this is really what they're smelling, what they're sniffing out for. That's what we believe. Of course, we actually don't know yet exactly what they're sniffing, and that's one of the mysteries hanging over this. And that's where the chemistry and physics will come in later in developing a, an electronic nose is narrowing down exactly which molecules people release. But we do know smells are chemicals, are molecules that are released from bodies, and they change with sickness. So these volatile organic compounds, we're shedding all the time, and we shed different ones when we're sick. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they come out with some more concrete data after they're kind of done training these dogs. And maybe it is something that can scale up. It'll be, uh, like I said, just super interesting to see a follow up on all of this. It'll be fascinating. It'll be fascinating. I, I just know that the people who are doing this work are very keen to do it safely and in a scientifically appropriate way. So that's another reason why it's not you're not going to see dogs tomorrow when you land at an airport in the U.S. Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.